Hey y'all, I'm Whitney Scarborough, the host of Wits End. Here we are real people asking hard questions. If you think you hear the hum of a fridge or a train in the background, it's because you probably are. We are recording these episodes from the comfort of my home in a small town called LaGrange, Texas. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, my dad. He lives in central Nebraska, and today we talk about raising kids in different stages, the goal of godly parenting, and how the Lord fills in the gaps of where we may be lacking. Let's dive in. Well, this is a special privilege, Dad. This is the first time I've gotten to interview... My dad for the podcast. I know. So, this is pretty cool. I know. <laughs> it's pretty fun. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. I know. And now you're here in LaGrange. And yes. I was like, dad, we got to do this. Come on. <laughs> so so I've been picking your brain the last couple of days. Yeah. And we just said, let's sit down and just talk. Have yeah, an open we conversation. We originally talked about this, I think, nine months ago. We yeah. started thinking about it. But then... There were all sorts of extenuating circumstances. We couldn't do it, but now we can. Yeah. So, Super yeah. excited. Such yeah. a privilege. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is, for those of you listening, this is my dad. And yeah. my dad has been my dad for close to 40 years. <laughs> Your whole life. <laughs> my whole life. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so you know, we're just going to dive in and, and talk about Good. all kinds of different things today. By but- the way, I love you. I'm so proud of you. And this is so fun to do this with you. And we were praying that somehow what our story would intersect with somebody else's story. Absolutely. And who who else can do that but God? Absolutely. He can do that. That's cool. So So, true. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Well, um, we want to just dive in and talk first a little bit about stages of parenting. Mm -hmm. Because now, you know, so I'm I'm the oldest of three, Mm -hmm. uh, three kids. And so... And the favorite of three. Um, of the favorite, right? Yes. D- clearly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely the favorite daughter. I am the only daughter. So we can say that safely. For sure. Right? No yeah. one will get offended by that. That's right. Um, but um, so stages of parenting, you know, yeah. Tim and I have three kids also, same birth order as our, as the, you know, what, what I was raised in, but right. our kids are younger, obviously, but we've already seen in just the past 10 years of parenting that there's stages that you, you, you yeah. go through and things shift so quickly. And so I would love for you just to talk a little bit about that. And how have you seen the stages of parenting change over the course of your parenting journey? Yeah. Yeah. And just talk about that. Well, I think, I, I think every generation says this, that, well, parenting is much more difficult now than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago, 60 years. Well, I think there's some truth to that. When you consider all of the things that you're up against, um, the social media, their access to voices that aren't coming from you or people that you mm-hmm. want information coming from. So it's incredibly complex to raise children in this environment. The demands on you and the tug of sports and are we going to raise kids or are we going to raise professional athletes? You know, it's like Mm -hmm. there's always that tension. Um, When it comes to stages, I think, you know, these are just common principles. And I think the Bible needs to be our guide in terms of principles. And your constraints as a parent are um, more severe 
the younger the child is, then you relinquish those the older they get for various reasons. You want to train them up in the way that they should go so you can't parent you know, a 20-year-old the same way you parented a two-year-old. Right. You need ba- uh, strict boundaries as a two-year-old versus, well, by the time they're 20, you need to go, hey, best of luck to you. <laughs> I hope we've done a good job. Right. Doesn't mean you stop being parents. You never stop being parents. But I, I think there's this jump from concrete to abstract. And what I mean by that is as a young child from the ages of zero to middle school, really, they're pretty concrete. Right. A plus B equals C. You do this, you step over the line, you're going to get hurt. Don't touch the oven. That's very concrete. Whereas there's this jump, and it's different for every child based upon when they mature, where they go from concrete thinking to abstract thinking. And where you're thinking about principles, you're thinking about metaphors, and you're connecting truth to real life, um, where you're drawing insinuations and applying that to your life. So it's very different. You've got to relate to, you've got to speak the language of the child where they're at. Don't speak abstractly to a child that is thinking concretely. And in the same way, don't always speak concretely to the child that is Hmm. now making that jump to the abstract world that we as adults live in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want us to specifically dive in more to some of those more difficult years that we're kind of coming up on. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we've just been talking the last couple of days even just about those preteen, teenage years um, that are so formative. And when you think back on those, what are some of the things that you you um, you go, okay, I, I think we did a good job there. I think yeah. I would do that again. I would encourage others to do that mm-hmm. also. You know, developing the relationship with the child never stops. And so I think when a child goes from, and I, I, I don't mean to demean them by calling them a child, but when a person goes from, grade school to junior high. I mean, there's certain ages that are pretty sweet for parents. When a child's in fourth grade and they think their parents are great, that's a sweet time. <laughs> right. We're in there. We're on the, we're on the verge of that being, right. being a thing of the past, but yeah. <laughs> they, they actually think you're cool. Yes. Yes. And then all of a sudden they go into this junior high period and they realize that oh my gosh, I don't want my friends to know that I even have parents. (laughs) You know, I can remember Friday nights going out and we'd go to Mr. Steak when I was a kid. And it used to be really fun. And now all of a sudden in junior high, I'm like, oh, I hope nobody sees me (laughs) with with my parents parents because I don't want them to know that I have parents. I mean, it's just so weird. Absolutely. So the... There's this sense of when our child kind of stiff arms us, when they do what I call the Heisman, you know, they they (laughs) stiff arm us and push us away. There's a sense as an individual, you go, well, well, I don't want to pursue you then. And we become childlike as parents. And yet we've got to press in when they're pushing away. And that is how do you do that? Again, I think you learn to speak their language. 
I remember a uh, professor of mine saying one time where he was talking about um, being a youth pastor. And he said that um, parents are always saying, I I don't know what to say to my child. I don't know how to communicate. And I remember him saying, sure you do. Speak to them about the things they want to talk about. Hmm. And it was like the light bulb went on. So simple. Yeah, so simple and, and very profound. So you find the metaphor that really connects with them. And then you talk about it. I, I remember your mom didn't really know that much about baseball or basketball or you know any sort of professional sports. But she learned to communicate because that was where your younger brother was, Cooper. He loved baseball cards, basketball cards. He lived in that world. So your mom did some research and she, so she could have educated mm-hmm. conversations with Cooper about sports that she didn't really care about. Yeah. But yet she learned to speak Cooper. And I think as a parent, we need to learn whatever phase they're at. We need to learn to speak their language. Right. And I don't think that ever stops. Whatever your child's interest in, fake it. (laughs) Do some research. Learn how to communicate. So there's a foundation of relationship that I think is so key that no matter where you're at in terms of your child's, and I want to just call it obedience, you know, because you, you always dream of your child always doing the right thing and doing the next best right thing and, you know, making, making wise, wise choices. moral choices. And yet, all God's children are disobedient. And, um, you know, free will trumps good parenting 10 times out of 10. They're going to make bad decisions. But even in the midst of those bad decisions, there's an underlying foundation of relationship. So it's kind of like, you know, the prodigal son type of-esque type story where, you know, the child may go off and go, well, I'm the heck with all your values. I'm going off and doing what I want to do. This, your Christian worldview is is knuckleheadish. I'm going to go off and I'm going to do what I want to do. And yet there's a sense, hey, I still love you. There's a relationship there, even though there's a disagreement maybe about the biblical principles that you um, are adhering to, but yet there's an underlying foundation because you want the conversation to continue right. because there'll be a day where they come back and they're, they'll ask you now, not as a parent, but as a consultant, what do you think about this? This has been hard. And then the relationship, because the relationship is there, then you can influence intentionally to hopefully their next stage of development. It's good. Ooh, that's a lot of good good stuff in there, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't even know how to unpack all that. So, okay, you just talked a little bit about what you did well, and I want to take a little bit of a... Um, maybe just a side side rabbit trail for a minute and talk sure. a little bit about how you were and kind of what you did yeah. when I started dating. And right. so about around when I was 15, I think mm-hmm. you, you had told me that you were going to do this Yeah. before, you know, I mean, I, you gave me a little bit of forewarning, but I didn't know how brutal and how mortifying it was going <laughs> to be. Mm-hmm. Right. But um, so... 
give us a little bit of a, the backstory. Yeah, I remember as a young man, and you were probably six, seven, eight years of age, and I remember an older mentor friend of mine saying to me, you know what, when your daughter gets to the age of dating, you and Julie need to determine what age you're going to allow Whitney to date. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? She's six. <laughs> She's never going to date. Well, the reality is time goes by pretty fast. And so to fail to plan is to plan to fail. You know, it's that whole principle. So I got it in my noodle that, well, you know what? When it comes time to date, well, I want to interview your dates. So we didn't just spring that on you. And we determined that, you know, at the age of 16, you know, when a when a young woman is in sophomore, junior in high school, that age range, you know what, that's an appropriate time that they can start dating. Now, there were also some principles in that is that we were told, you know, when your daughter starts dating, make sure there's equal power. And what I mean by that is your 16-year-old daughter doesn't need to be going out with a 21-year-old who has all the power. She needs to have the same amount of power as the person she's dating or she's going out with. But the whole principle of um, interview your daughter's dates. And so the way I would set it up is, and, and Whitney was privy to this years ahead of time. So you were privy to the fact that this was going to be the requirement. We weren't just going to Hey, whoever you want to go out with, start going out with them. That individual had to come to me, set up an interview, and I would stage it in my office. I was a pastor. Yeah. You were in high school. Side note, as if that were, that's not an intimidating yeah. case, too. <laughs> and so I wanted, I, I thought, I, I didn't want to, you know, it's not one of those deals where I, when the, the young man comes to the door and I've got on the goggles and a gun and, you know, and a <laughs> chainsaw. I didn't want to scare them, but this was good for their development as well. So I would set it up that they would call me up. You would give them my cell number. I, they would call me up. I would say, hey. I'm pretty so sure I actually had to give them your admin admin secretary, you know, their, right. their number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which <laughs> so is even better because that, that's a whole nother step. Increase <laughs> the degree of difficulty is always a good yeah. thing. Yeah. So they would call up and they would say, you know, Mr. Brenton. You know, yeah. <laughs> which I love that, you know, at this point, I don't want them to call me Dan, you know, it's Mr. Brenton. So, um, hey, you know, the prom's coming up or whatever date. And I was wanting to ask Whitney and I wanted to get your permission. Well, great. Hey, let's set up a time. What's a good time for you to come by the office? OK, so then they would come by the office and I would let the receptionist know, the secretary know and. I called it the green mile. You know, they would come in the building and they would have to walk down the hallway, which was the green mile <laughs> to the way to their death. They would come in the office. It was kind of like I remember um, hearing that President Nixon would, whenever somebody would come meet with him, he would purposefully be behind his desk, walk around the desk to come greet him. You know, it was this whole intimidation factor. <laughs> That I'd milk. Wow, Dad, I had no idea how I milked it for all it was worth. So I had the desk and then I had this conference table. And so I would come back from around the desk, set the young man down and say, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself. And 
have a conversation with him and then say, you know, um, I tell me why you want to take Whitney out on a date. And they would kind of mumble around, oh, well, she's nice and she's she loves God and she's a good. And I don't you think she's pretty? Oh, yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty, yeah. <laughs> you totally you know, set them up for that. Their neck was all red, you know, from being <laughs> nervous. But you know what? This is good for a young man. And then to be able to say, you know what? I, I We have raised Whitney with some principles, with some priorities. And um, here are some of those priorities. And so um, we want, when you take her out, we are trusting that you are going to help us uphold those um, priorities that Whitney has set forth in her life. Can I count on you to do that? Well, that's a good question because there's a degree of accountability there to say, hey, you know what? We're in a team here. And now I'm trusting you to make sure that these guidelines that are so important to us and so important to Whitney now, Would you help uphold those? Can I count on you to do that? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, I I will do that. Now, take a step back. Think about the individual that's like when they came to you and said, hey, Whitney, you want to go out on Saturday night? And you said, well, sure. Yeah, but you have to interview my dad. Have to go through an interview with my dad first. Well, you know, you think about that. If that person didn't want to do that, what does that say about the quality and the integrity of that young man? And that did happen. I remember being very angry at you one time because I remember a guy yeah. actually told me that. He said, I, I want to take you out and I would like to date you, but I know about your dad's thing and I'm not going to do that. Dad's thing. <laughs> and I remember yeah. coming home and being like, dad, it's so unfair, you know, I'm so mad at you. <laughs> and, um, you know, and you were kind of like, case in point, when he like, if, if he can't come to to talk to me face to face. Right. Then I can't trust him to be alone with you for yeah. hours upon hours. And, you know, and so I was, yeah. I mean, at the time, I, I mean, I kind of even knew you were right, but I didn't, I didn't want to admit it, you know? Yeah. Later it came back to me. of like, oh yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, and I don't think he was, it wasn't even that this guy was a bad guy or even that he had terrible intentions, sure. but it, to you, it, it weeded out some guys that, Probably I didn't need to be spending a lot of my investing a lot of my heart right. and my, you know, my energy into. Yeah. So. And, you know, most of the guys that I remember interviewing were guys that I knew previously. Yeah. I already had some sort of a relationship with them because they were friends of yours that you hung out with in the same groups. Yeah. So it wasn't out of a total vacuum. Right. That I would meet these guys. And so they knew me. I had some sort of relational clout with them and so it was it was healthy for them right and it even if they didn't continue to date you what was good is well now i had a continued relationship with them for years to come and that has been true with some of these young men yeah which is which was really kind of fun it's part of their spiritual growth and discipleship yeah very cool i i love the illustration that you would always say about the car in the parking lot, throwing them the keys or whatever. Yeah. I don't know how exactly how you worded it. Well, I, I would, hypothetical situation. I mean, at that phase of our life, we didn't have that nice of cars, as you remember. <laughs> but 
I would just kind of say, hey, you know, let's say I had this Corvette, really nice sports car. And um, man, I've taken, I've wiped this thing down with a diaper at night. I've taken such quality care of it. It's a beautiful vehicle. And what if I just said, hey, here's the keys to the car, you know, flip them the keys and just say, hey, take it and have at it, you know, drive at your own risk. I mean, that would be crazy. I would go through a lot more rigorous kind of a gauntlet before I just toss them the keys. Well, the idea is how much more valuable are you, my daughter, than a Corvette, a piece of metal? You know, you have um, just the, the, the value of your child is it can't be measured in dollars and cents compared to a car. Right. And so I'm not going to throw you the keys to this car. Well, in the same way, I'm not going to throw you the keys to my daughter. I'm going to make sure that you take very good care of this because God has entrusted. Here's the reality. Here's why you're doing this. As a parent, God has entrusted you under my care. You haven't been married. You're not married yet at that time. You're a 16, 17 year old girl. And so it's like you're under, I'm called by God. I'm, I'm responsible to God to take care of you. Right. And if I'm not doing that, well, then I've got to answer to the Lord. So this is a stewardship issue. Hmm. It's good stuff, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> kind of got me choked up there a little bit. Just well, thinking you know, about yeah, that. That's a, it, you were of incredible and still are. Now, as a married woman... It's like you're no longer under my responsibility. Right. You're now one with your husband. And so now my role with you as an adult woman, it changes. I'm no longer the steward of you. Your husband, Tim, is the steward of you. He's your protector. Yeah. Now my role shifts to being more of a consultant. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, Julie and I have talked a lot about there's not that many books out there on raising adult children. Yeah, or parenting in that state Parenting adult children. Right. Yeah, raising is the wrong word. Parenting adult children because we never stop being parents. Right. Um, and so my role as your parent changes. I don't need to be the helicopter dad. Right. I don't call you up and say, hey, did you get out of bed this morning? Exactly. Did you make it to yeah. your first appointment? I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, but I, I think that this is good. This is a good word for a lot of people to hear on all different stages of parenting, because um, I think that, you know, I have friends, I have peers who express frustration at what is it? I can't even put my finger on it exactly. What is it? You know, maybe my family lives here in town or, um, you know, my my parents have this kind of overbearing sense. And, and, and you're describing exactly kind of the breakdown of well, there is supposed to be a transition that happens and there's yeah. supposed to be a handing over of stewardship that you said, you know, you talked about. And so you're kind of putting some words to, I think, some of that tension that sometimes people identify that they can't even fully, yeah. you know, explain. Why is this so tense with my parents? Yeah. Well, it's because, you know, maybe your dad or your mom is still trying to yeah. parent you 
in um, more of a parenting way versus that consulting way, yeah. which is appropriate for the stage, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, let me just add to that. Our friend Dick Hastings, a professional counselor, says that most divorces occur that occur within the first two years are directly correlated to over-involvement of parents. Hmm. And, you know, I tell, when I do, I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling. And so one of the things I say to them is that um, your parents' happiness is not your responsibility. And it's almost like you see them going, what? Hmm. Because parents have a tendency to make their adult children feel as though yes. their behavior determines Absolutely. whether they're going to be happy or not. Right. And just like mm-hmm. your children aren't, the their behavior is not a requirement for your happiness. So I use, use the example, I say, my daughter, who's 36 years old, what part of my day is she responsible for? Zero. Now, you make me happy. You're a wonderful person, and I love you as much as I possibly can. But my happiness isn't dependent on your behavior. And so when we get that kind of screwy, you know, when we get that, um, that's when it can become very warped, where the child begins to think, oh, gosh, if we don't go to mom's house for the fried chicken dinner, all hell will break loose. Right. Well, that's... That's an awkward position that the parent is putting their son or daughter in. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's a whole nother category. Yeah. That may be a conversation yeah. later about relations with your with your parents. Yeah, that whole juggernaut. We'll be back in just a minute after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Eric Lehman at Thrivent Financial. Wendy and I became members with Thrivent a couple of years ago right before I went skydiving. And then she sent me on a ski trip by myself with some buddies. So I have the feeling that she wanted the life insurance policy just in case things went awry, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Listen, I am married to someone I know is an adventurous spirit who I think you said the other day, if there's not a chance I could die, it's not exciting for me or something along those lines. But back to the ad, okay? (laughs) Uh, So seriously, we really are big fans of Thrivent. Not only does Thrivent offer a range of financial services from, like we talked about, life insurance to retirement plans, they also encourage you to give back to your community through something called action teams. And through these action teams, they actually provide resources and funds to help you meet needs in your local community so it's really nice i am being held hostage right now so uh, this is a cry for help somebody help me stop it so if you're interested look into a thrivent near you at www.thrivent.com help me and now back to the conversation we'll talk a little bit about being a dad, the role of a father. And then also we want to spend a little time just encouraging mothers who may be listening, um, who feel like, you know, for whatever reason there is either they're a single mom or the father is absent. So talk first about the role of a father though. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and I, the role of a father changes from what stages a child is in, in their life. Um, but I think God sets up this beautiful thing from Genesis on where um, 
the husband and the wife are one, we're better together in this parenting thing than we are individually. And yet, what does that have to do with the single parent? Because there's not only single moms, the majority of single parents are single moms, but there's also single dads. So how do they do that when they don't have an other to do the parenting with them? And um, I I think in a, let me just kind of address in a um, husband and wife, both of them are in this for the right reasons. Well, that's the ideal. But even in the midst of that, there's struggles because of my selfishness, your wife's selfishness, the child's selfishness. That's all very difficult to maneuver. But I think of this equation where Julie and I, when we're on the same page in our parenting, when I'm parenting out of my strength, she's parenting out of her strength, well, that both of us are stronger. For Julie and I, Julie was more of the law person. I was more of the grace person. And I don't mean that in a throwing her under the bus. I could have erred maybe to the side of permissiveness. And so together, though, if we communicated and we we weren't rushed, I think parents think they're always rushed to make decisions about their what decisions they make as a parent. You can take all the time you want, you know, err to the side of over communicating with one another. So that's an ideal situation. And I think it's the dad's responsibility to initiate, to lead. It doesn't mean that he's got the greatest insight. God gave me in Julie a helper. And that doesn't mean that um, I'm an nincompoop. What it means is that she can help me be better than I could ever be on my own. So to go into parenting as a man without the consultation of this helper that God's given me, that's foolishness. Because many times my wife had much more insight into what you were going through, what the boys were going through. And so together we made a formidable foe for good in our house. But now let me talk about the single parenting situation. I grew up in a situation where my dad was disabled. You know this, Grandpa Jack, always in and out of the hospital. So no fault of his own, many times mom was the single parent. And this is where I believe, you know, Jesus comes into those absent crevices of our life and he is our sustenance. He becomes the father to the fatherless. Um, the, the husband to the single mom. And also Jesus uses the body of Christ to shore up those areas where we not, might not humanly have enough support there. I, I think of my background growing up, my mom was um, there in the morning, in the evening, and in the in-between times. She was the stabilizing force. And she was tough and she worked her tail off. And so no fault of my dad's, it's just the physical difficulties limited him as a parent. But then also this is where the graciousness of God comes in, where God uses men who weren't my father. And sometimes men who weren't even believers, they weren't even followers of Jesus, but they showed an interest in me. 
they encouraged me in areas where they saw um, that I had some potential and they fanned that flame. And so those men in my background um, and then my grandfather, that helped shore up those areas where dad wasn't able to be present. And I think that's the beauty of raising a child in the body of Christ. Single mom, most difficult job imaginable. My mom would get up in the morning, she went to work, she put the food on the table, she got us to ball practices, and I don't know if she'd ever got a thank you from us when she was doing it. Um, But yet, God's there. And God is so much more concerned about us than our parents can even be. And, And so that's an equation, pray like crazy, and God will fill in those gaps. He will be the father to the fatherless. Now, I don't know if I answered your Amen. question or not. No, um, I think that's so good. You know, well, piggyback uh, off something. No, it's so good. I think that that what an encouragement that is to parents in all kinds of seasons, you know? Yeah. Um, whether, yeah, it's like you said, the... Um, the quote unquote ideal situation um, or it's a situation that feels like it's lacking. Mm -hmm. You know, we have this on our wall right now. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Yeah. And to think about that as no matter what stage of parenting that you are in, that God truly has equipped you Mm -hmm. with all that you need to steward that child. Well, I wanted to just ask you to say something that you've said before to me, I know, and I think I've heard you say it in a in a situation where you're giving a message, but you said it was the, about the goal of godly parenting. Mm-hmm. And this was just really good. It was essentially that, you know, the goal of godly parenting is not that your kids will be godly. Of course, that's something that you desire. It's something that you hope for. Yeah. But that the goal of godly parenting is to be godly parents. Absolutely. Am I saying that right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have a, and I spoke about this recently, in our 21st century Christianity, we're so, I think we can be too results-oriented. If I do A, then God is bound to do B. And it's like, no, he's not. <laughs> so we, in our parenting, we think, okay, my goal is I'm going to raise a godly child. Well, no, that's an outcome. Your goal in parenting is to be a godly parent. You know, it's this whole idea of um, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way that they should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, there's this idea that, no, my goal is I, I to, to train up a child in the way that they should go presupposes that I've got the ingredients to train them up. The only, the, the main ingredient I need is to trust with all my heart and soul in God. So the goal of godly parenting is not the result of this child, but it is being godly yourself. So, you know, that takes the, um, because what do you say to the person whose child is wayward? Was the prodigal son's father, was he not successful? No, I think he was incredibly successful because he trained up this child and the child came back. 
and he was godly in how he greeted his child when the child came back. Isn't that a great picture? Mm -hmm. And so to say when that child was off eating, you know, the food that swine are eating, well, does that mean dad's not a good dad? No. No, no, no. I think what revealed that that dad was a good dad is he was godly throughout his whole journey. So very important, I think. You, you don't put the cart before the horse. As a parent, no, my, my objective is to be a godly parent. And then you trust God yeah. for those results. It's good. And you keep trusting him. Yeah. Would there be anything that you would say when you look back that you go, I wish I would have done this a little differently, or I wish I would have. I mean, I'm sure there's little things you could nitpick, which is missing the point, right? Yeah. But if there are even overarching themes or things that you would advise people of, what would that be? Yeah, I I think um, I, I look back, and I think we're always our worst critics. Yeah. We're harder on ourselves than we are on anybody else. I look back and I think, I don't know that I'd change much about relationship because with all three of you, your mom and I have a great relationship. And I think part of that is finding the metaphor that you can connect with, with your, with your child. Right. With you, it was art. It was music. It was expression. Um, it was, um, you know, multigrain pancakes at IHOP, <laughs> you know, where we go out and that was just such a rich time of just asking you open-ended questions about yourself. With the boys, it was other things. Yeah. I, I think if I could go back, it was like, because I, and, and I think this is a nice way of saying it, I was more on the side of grace. Well, let's, let's be honest here. I was more permissive, you know? And so <laughs> I You were the probably, first one I called every time I got in a fender bender, let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your mom was like, okay, curfew, 11 o'clock, 1101, the hammer of God comes down. <laughs> Whereas I'm kind of like, oh, what's an hour? You know, <laughs> they could have thought it was daylight savings time. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, I, I think had I gone back, I, I would have been more um, hard on you at times. I think the criticism that, that I uh, pound myself, I was too nice at times. Mm. Um, and I think there's a good place for that. Yeah. But yet at the same time, there was a sense of, you know what? No, I, I need to, I need to toe the line here. I, I need to come down. This was the agreement. You didn't match up your agreement. And so here's the penalty that needs to be paid. Huh. And, um, rather than just, cause it's not grace to, um, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. There was a penalty that needs to be paid. And, um, you know, Jesus just didn't let us slide into heaven without our penalty being paid. And so I think I, I needed to, probably looking back, is to go, no, there's a penalty that needs to be paid. And this is a good model for future relationships, for your future parenting. Um, so I think that's probably the area where I go, mm, oops, missed on that one. So what you're saying is, this is that now you're going to call in all the thing, all all the money I owe you 
that you said, okay, you're going to have to pay me for this car accident that I never probably did. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Where you go, I promise I put on the brakes and it just didn't stop. It's like, wait a minute. I just got new brakes in this car. What are you talking about? No, that one didn't hold water. But I was always like, oh, oh honey, just give you're her the more benefit important of the than doubt. metal and I love you. And are you okay? Yeah. Where's your mom? Yeah, yeah, she would have probably been. And I, I don't throw your mom under the bus. I think your mom is a better parent, better person, better teacher than I am. And you know that. I know that. I, I really feel that. So I don't throw her under the bus. That was my, that was my softness. I was too nice. <laughs> we benefited from it, though. <laughs> you know what? I, I've always said this. It's like with, with three kids, when... Two of you would see me be gracious to another one. Yep. You were always like, come on, Dad, you're too nice. And what you loved <laughs> about my niceness to you, you hated about my niceness to one of your siblings. It's true. It's true. There's a parable about that, pretty sure. Yeah. Jesus told a parable about that. Yeah. yeah for you, sure. you like grace when it's coming when, at you, but when it's going towards it's other people, to somebody you, else. Start, you turn into like the older brother and the prodigal son. And you're like, <laughs> that is not fair. Yeah. I have been doing the right thing. Time for some bad advice from folks who should know better. <laughs> That's us. Again, speak for yourself. <laughs> well, you should know better. <laughs> what? Then doing this outro thing with you? Were you always <laughs> no, asking? then giving the advice you're about to give. Oh, great. Well, you, maybe if you gave me a little heads up, <laughs> let me think about it for like a minute. No, you got to think on your feet. No, I'm terrible at that. I was always that. That's why I got so many black eyes when I played softball. (laughs) Because I'm not good at on the moment, you know. Like think fast. Someone, whenever someone says that to me, think fast. It's like I literally just like blink and like curl up into a fetal position. (laughs) It's like, hey, I'm throwing it at you. Oh no, that just means I'm gonna get knocked out. (laughs) My glasses are about to get shattered from an incoming ball. All right. Well. Then this next question is perfect. Okay. How long do you think you would last in a zombie apocalypse? Oh my gosh. If I was by myself, like a minute, maybe five, you, if I was with you, we would be the last people alive. I know it. (laughs) Well, you got to think, you can outrun zombies. They're very slow, right? So you got to think about that. But you can't run forever, right? So you got to have somewhat of a plan. I'm already having nightmares. Thank you about this question. This is why I can't watch shows like Walking Dead because they just terrify me so much. <laughs> Seriously, I feel like we would have to go to like a place in the middle of nowhere where we could like homestead. We'd have to take our chickens with us. Yeah. And we'd have to go homestead somewhere. And you would have to build something very fast. Carpenter. <laughs> with like raw wood, like a Lincoln log cabin. I don't know. Are these like the kind from I Am Legend where they like, uh, you know how they like, it's like light brings them out. No, light 
no, they come out in the they dark. They can't and come out in the light. The light scares them. That's right. Not necessarily. I don't know what brand of zombies they are, okay. but yeah, I don't know just a general, you know, okay. generic zombie apocalypse. Okay. But yeah, we'd have to. I'm just thinking of the plan of all. I'm making you. I'm making a honey do list right now of all the things you would need to do to keep it alive. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, yeah, I don't have many uh, <laughs> life-saving skills. I mean, I have trouble making a fire in the fireplace. <laughs> so, what can I do, actually? What survival skills do I have? I can wash clothes in a stream. <laughs> I can paint. <laughs> I can make oatmeal over a boiling pot of water. <laughs> So, um, I really don't know much about knives, guns, slingshots, um, <laughs> any of that other stuff. So once again, <laughs> I choose you, pick you for my team. <laughs> okay. Well, stick close because we don't know when this is going to happen. Okay. Okay. Hopefully never. All so. right. So if you did go in the zombie apocalypse, okay. what would you want your headstone to say? In the, in the zombie apocalypse, it would probably read something like, Well, she tried. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, a little bit lighter question. Okay. Thank you. What is the greatest gift you can give somebody? Whoa, babe. That's a very deep question. I probably should be thinking about these things on a regular basis. That's why I'm asking. Hmm. I mean, I can answer this in so many different ways once again. The greatest gift you can give someone? Yeah. Me personally? Yeah. I mean, I think it all goes back to what did Jesus do for us? And he said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. So it's like actually giving your life for someone else is the ultimate sacrifice. Which I think, you know, not all of us are called to make in the course of our life to actually lay down our life. But I think we can do it in a thousand tiny ways when we die to ourselves and essentially give life to someone else. I mean, we do it as a mom. I do it for my kids, you know, when they want something and I want to do something else. I die to myself and I give them something for their life or a friend you know who has a need and it maybe is an inconvenience for you but you make that sacrifice and die to yourself so I think it would ultimately be about self-sacrifice for the good of someone else I mean thinking about even just the process of childbirth the act of actually giving life to another human is painful and breaking and does not you know no one no one can no mother can escape that um, without there being some level of of pain or brokenness you know or, or, or sacrifice that she has to make whether it's actually in labor or in the nine months leading up to it or the the minutes and the, the days after you know the months after so yeah good gift yeah I like it sacrificing yourself we can yeah. do it in big and small ways. I like it. Okay, good. Just sticking with it. <laughs> glad you glad you approve.
To find show notes for this and past episodes or to engage on a deeper level, you can go to wovenministry.com slash podcast. If you enjoy what you hear so far, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners find and share this feed. If you'd like to tell us what you enjoyed about this podcast or ask your hard question, you can call us at 512-815-2446. That's 512-815-2446. You'll simply leave a voicemail with what's on your mind, and we might just include your voice on a future episode. Music and editing for the show is by Callan Brown. Recording and production by Tim Scarborough. I'm Whitney Scarborough, and we'll be back here with more very soon. Thanks for listening.